We're in Acts chapter 17, and we're going to kind of back up a few verses when Paul is still in Thessalonica, and then we're going to kind of run into the next place he goes. And remember, at Thessalonica, you know, some really good things had happened. There were a lot of people who responded to the gospel. The Jewish people responded. A lot of the Gentiles, men and women, responded. But then, as we're going to see, there was a negative response. So verse 5 says this, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city, uh, I'm sorry, before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So we've been going through this series on becoming his church, and we've talked about that that's, that's what we want to be. This wasn't just this chapter, I mean, this book of Acts wasn't just chosen at random. It's, it's in some ways meant to be an affirmation. It's an affirmation of those areas in our church where we're already there or we've made good progress and we can continue to get better. But then it's also ways to, to look at and say, we're not there. There's things we need to work on. And I hope that you've been encouraged, but at the same time challenged as we look at this. I've used this example before, but I'm just going to use it again. And if you've heard it before, um, you know, just act like it's the first time. But I've, I've talked about this before. Like, if we were to go into like a two to three mile radius of this church, and all we were going to do is go door to door and just ask one question. And the question is, what comes to mind when you hear Wiley Baptist Church? What's the first word that comes to mind? Just one word. Well, wonder what the response would be. They, most people probably couldn't keep it to one word. You know, they might say the church at the corner or, you know, the one by Kahala Some of them might know people or, you know, the place I used to go or something like that, right? But what I really believe, the number one by far response would be something akin to uh, what? Um, not sure. 
Why LA Baptist Church? Where is that? And it's one of these things where, like, if we got into the whole marketing thing and all of that, you know, we could change that. You know, we could have banners out. You know, we could send mailers to everybody. We, you know, we could change, like, our, our image in the marketplace. We could change our position by, by just putting the word out. But you, that really wouldn't be, you know, the, the, the way that we would actually make something effective that would be what we see from Scripture. And I want you to kind of keep that in your head. I want you to keep that in your head as we go through this, this message today. Because the problem isn't that people just don't know who we are, okay? So that's not the problem. The problem isn't that we just might not necessarily have a presence in the community. The problem is this, that what we're going through is not much different from what a lot of churches are going through. And because of that, most people in the world have never seen the full effect of the gospel. Most people in the world have never seen the full effect of the gospel. They might have like this, this limited look at the gospel. Maybe they just, they just see like, um, you know, they just see like, you know, one Christian, or maybe they, they, their gospel that they get is they just watch something on the internet or, 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 you know, a TV preacher or something like that. That's their understanding. Maybe grandma shared something with them when they were really young, and that's what they understand. And a lot of that could very well be true, but it doesn't show the full effect of the gospel. There's some, some, dis, some distortion, too. They, they could have had distorted views. They, they, they could have just kind of decided they're going to, you know, figure it out. They're going to look at whatever facts they know about the gospel and then put it all together. Sometimes that results in them accepting the gospel, but it's not really accepting the gospel. It's accepting a distorted gospel. But our job as Christians, our job as the church, is to help people see the full effect of the gospel. The full effect of the gospel is not simply you get right with Christ, I get right with Christ. The full effect of the gospel is that Christ unites us in such a way that we have this supernatural love for each other that transcends every other relationship in the world. That when people see that, they know it's not because I'm that great a person. They know it's not because that's what typically happens in the world. I've, I've used this example before, but if you go to Kahala Mall and you see a group like this, people of varying ages, hanging out together at Kahala Mall. Okay, maybe they're over in that food court area, eating. All of you would assume they're family. That's what you'd assume. Because the only two possibilities is their family or their church. 
Because there's no earthly reason for people from such diverse backgrounds as we have to be together. There's no earthly reason. The reason that we're together, the reason that we're a church, the reason that we have these, these communities or relationships with each other that, that, that has nothing to do with the world is because of what Christ has done in us. You see, any belief, any belief that, that I've heard, any philosophy I've heard, they can, they can present to you one good person. So a lot of times Christianity is like, hey, you know, uh, look, look at how God has changed this person who is just this terrible person to a to much better person, a nicer person, a happier person. Okay, I believe that. I believe that's what Christianity, I believe that's what the gospel can do. But I can guarantee you, you can go to almost any other religion and they can say, well, look at this guy. You know, this, look, at, look what she used to be like. And now that they're following whatever that faith is, they're a good person. Now, we all know that that's not the same thing. I'm just saying from the outside looking in, any faith system can produce one good person. But none of them can produce a good community. None of them can produce a community that's, that's truly based on love, service of one another. It's not about power. It's not about control. That anything that we look at beyond just who's here is only we look towards God. And so the, the witness that we have is not simply, it's not simply that we have this good community. I mean, I'm sorry, this good person. But it's when these good people come together and they form a community like no other. What drew people, what drew people to to the church in Acts wasn't simply that they were proclaiming the gospel, they were. But what was drawing them, even after Paul left, even after Pentecost and the, and the big sermons we see Peter preaching, what kept drawing them was people coming together, forming a community that was unlike anything that was seen in the world. And people were drawn to it. Otherwise, what holds communities together, it's going to end up becoming, it has to be held together by some kind of law. And if law, then it has to be somehow enforced. Otherwise, they fall apart. So we, we, we live in this situation where people haven't really seen the full effect of the gospel in this side of, you know, the glorious day that we sang about, the full effect of the gospel is seen in the church. And so Paul, 
He, he goes to these different cities and almost immediately this genuine just church, this community comes together. And we saw it. We saw it in Thessalonica. And then we're seeing it here in Berea. And the world cannot help but take notice. R- remember, in Thessalonica, Christianity had only recently come to Europe, and they already knew. They already knew what was happening in Asia Minor. The world can see the effects. And when the world gets to know you, you know, a lot of people would go like, oh yeah, you know, they look from the outside, oh yeah, those people are all together because they're all brainwashed. You know? They're all brainwashed. They've all been kind of manipulated. You know, as, as though any kind of healthy united church must be something like, you know, some, some cult. But that's why. When they get to know you, and when they get to know other people in the church, and when they see the community together, and they realize we're a lot weirder than, than they know. We're a lot more different than we look. We look pretty different. We have different ages, different ethnicities, different educational backgrounds, different income levels. We have all of these things going on. But when we really get down to the personality level, when we get down to like the background, that's when you really see the strange, strange people at this church, including myself. And it helps you really see the miracle that we're not all here because we have this been brainwashed. We're here because we've been united by the Holy Spirit. We're here because we're devoted to his word. We're here because we want to see whatever we experience, whatever we experience because of Christ in our lives, in our personal lives and in this church, that we want the rest of the world to know it too. And so last week we talked about what success sometimes bring, and the main focus was, hey, it brings people coming to Christ. This week, the emphasis is going to be in the other direction. But don't forget last week. Don't forget last week as we talk about this week. One of the things we see from the text, both in Thessalonica and Berea, and it's not just here, we've seen it in other places, that the more successful a church, the more successful a church, the more culture will react to it. By successful, just understand, we're not talking about size. We're not talking about having, you know, a TV show. We're not talking about, you know, putting, you know, it's the... Wiley Baptist Church, UH Football Stadium, you know, getting, you know, putting our naming rights. We're not talking about that. By successful, we mean being the body of Christ. It means living out the word. It means being in love with one another. That the more successful a church becomes, the more 
culture will react to it. It cannot help but take notice. And we saw this in Acts. We saw this, you know, all the way back to the ministry of Peter. Peter and John and the early apostles in Jerusalem. We see this in the ministry of Philip. We see this in the ministry of, of Paul, Barnabas, Silas. The world cannot help but take notice when, when the gospel is proclaimed, lives are changed, churches are formed, and these communities are living out the gospel. But I want you to also understand that the reaction that must take place is not always positive. It's not always, hey, I want to join those guys. I want to know more about those guys. It's not always, hey, that's great for them. That's awesome. Kind of makes our community better. That's cool. Those are some reactions. But we've also seen in all of those guys I named, Peter, John, Philip, Paul, other names, Stephen, Jason, James. We also see that the reaction can be persecution. Let me make something clear. A negative reaction by culture does not mean we're doing it right. Don't just think like, as some Christians and some churches will sometimes say like, Oh, you know, we're being attacked. And that just proves we're on the right track. No. What proves you're on the right track is you're on the right track. Okay? What proves you're following God's word and God's will is because you're seeking after God's will, you're understanding God's word, and you're doing it. That's what proves it. The reaction doesn't prove it one way or another. But make no mistake, when we faithfully live the gospel, and especially as a church, the world cannot help but take notice, and the reactions can be positive, they can be neutral, but they can also be negative. We live in a culture where we rarely get to see the negative. We don't face the negative. If we do, it's, you know, it's not really even rises to the level of persecution. You know, it's, it's like if we all somehow are, you know, in eternity and sitting around with a bunch of other Christians from all different times and somehow and just sitting around talking, persecution comes up. And people are like, yeah, man. You know, I got eaten by a lion. Somebody else is like, I got burned at the stake. And then, you know, you're like, one of my friends said something mean to me once. I mean, I wouldn't even want to share it. I would be like, no, no, I wasn't persecuted. But understand, when we faithfully live the gospel, when we are quote-unquote successful, it cannot help but be a negative reaction. Some of them will be small. If we had, you know, numerical success, for example, 
right? We had numerical success here. And let's say it was good numerical success. It wasn't just because we gave away free pizza every Sunday. We're not planning to do that, so don't come for pizza. But let's say it was genuine to the point where, you know, we're having hundreds, if not thousands of people come through this. Do you think anybody in the Wailaikahala area would notice? And do you think they would care? About five years ago, one homeless couple, one homeless couple wanted to stay in our, on our campus for less than a month. And some of the neighbors found it intolerable. Imagine if we felt like what we want to do here is, is serve our homeless by giving them a place to come and eat or take a shower. Think there's going to be a reaction in our community? I guarantee you there will be. Some of it will be positive. Some of you know we helped a guy a couple months ago, and Stacy told this guy who kind of knows in the kind of a political figure, and he's like, oh, I want to get a proclamation from the state legislature or something to say, like, you know, Wildlife Baptist Church did this great thing. So sometimes it'll be positive. It can be negative, too. What if things are happening here all day? People coming and going just because of whatever it is, Bible studies, you know, ministries together, whatever it is. Could there be a reaction? Sure. And those are small ones. Those aren't the big ones. The big ones that Paul would often face was because Christianity had taken such a hold in these cities that it was actually affecting the local economy. The local economy, the business people were having to make decisions of either we need to change our businesses or we need to get rid of these Christians because they're really hurting our business. Ultimately, the real problem that's at the heart of all this is because when we are the church, when we are the church and we're the, the diverse church in love with God and in love with each other, we show the world that there's another way. That they don't have to choose between the two options they think they have, which is just give in to the most powerful or just separate, individualize, do my own thing, hope I don't get caught. Instead, we show them there's another way, but we also tell them that way is only possible if Jesus Christ has changed our lives, if the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. When someone takes away your excuses, when someone shows you another way, and that other way is not because we're exceptional people. We're just people. When that happens, the world has to react. 
It's interesting because when you look at this text, when they're talking, when they go to Thessalonica, and some of the Jews believed, but some of them did not, and they, it says they were jealous. And then you come down to verse 11, and it says that some of the Jewish people, I mean, all of the Jewish people were more noble. In other words, they actually listened, and they tried to understand, and they searched through Scripture. So they wanted to make sure that what Paul and Silas were saying was, was right. And then it says many of them believed. But when we think about, you know, what, you know, what is the, you know, what are, what, what's the problem in this sense? This isn't just the sense of showing the world there's another way. But in some ways it is, but I think it's in terms we can understand. See, what the struggle was with the Jewish people at this time was a struggle between legalism and grace. Legalism and grace between having rules we're supposed to follow, rituals we're supposed to follow, and grace. And I will tell you, even from other churches, you will sometimes get pushback from other churches if your church becomes known for grace. Because you're not... Like, you, you know, you're, you're letting people come to your services that, that they might not feel welcome, or they, I mean, they, they might not think should be there. And so they, they're like, you know, what's your problem? I've told you before, I, I, want, every, I want everybody to be able to, to come. I want everybody to feel welcome in this place. But I also want to make sure you understand that not everybody is going to be a member of the church. Membership is for those who, who have you know, expressed faith in Jesus Christ, who've committed to, to being part of this community. But I would love for everyone else to come. How else are they going to hear? How else are they going to know? How are they going to get to see the witness of the church and how the church loves each other. I was talking to someone who, who was, you know, we got into talking about theology. And he had said, like, you know, I've you know, identified in this certain theological camp. I don't want to bring it up because I don't want to cause a dispute here. But he said once he identified with that camp, that position, and he started to talk to more people that he thought were in that position, that that camp was divided up into smaller camps. That's the spirit of legalism. It's not the spirit of grace. The other one that pops up in, in our society and in our churches is when a church says, we're going to stand on the word of God. The word of God is the supreme authority in our lives. It is the true word of God, inerrant. When we make an absolute stand, there's, immediately, there's immediate pushback from people that want a more relative view. 
they, they want a more relative view because they think in being more relative, they can be more embracing. When you're, when you're the church, when you're truly his church, you both stand on the absolute truth of God's word, but you also have an abundance of grace. Jesus warned his followers of this. He warned that the world will react, and even sometimes, not just the world, but even within, in, within Christianity, that different churches, different denominations will react when you are successful. When we haven't let go of the world and what the world values and how the world does things, the world has to react. And in Jesus' farewell discourses, when he's saying goodbye to his apostles, although they didn't know he was saying goodbye, but he was, in chapter 15 of the Gospel of John, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And again, he's talking about, when he talks about the world, he's, he's not just necessarily talking about people. Of course, the people make up the world, but he's talking about this, that spirit of the world. If you have the same spirit as the spirit of the world, the world's going to accept you. If your church is all about power or wealth or whatever, they're going to accept you in a certain level and then they're going to fight with you the same way they fight with any other powerful thing. But if you live the way Jesus lives, if you operate under his value system because of what the Spirit is doing in your life, then it's not about all of that. It is about love. It is about humility. It isn't about revenge. Jesus, I mean, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. These are like amen, amen, amen verses. This is like, this is what happens. This is what Jesus Christ accomplished. This is what, if you will have faith in Jesus Christ, you can experience. You can have peace with God. You have access by faith. You have access to this Incredible grace. We rejoice. All of us can go, all right, amen. But then in verse 3 he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Wait, we rejoice in hope? I get that, Paul. But rejoice in sufferings? 
knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In summary, Paul's saying, we rejoice in the peace we have with God through faith, but we also rejoice in the suffering. If the world is going to react to us being like Christ and the reactions are negative, Paul is helping us understand this is what's going to happen. This is why it's happening. Part of the reason we rejoice is because you have only like, like theoretical love until you actually have to deal with situations where you have to love. If some of you got in your like way back machines and you went back in time and you thought about all the stupid things you said about what kind of parent you would be before you had kids. That's how I'm gonna do with my kids. So I'm gonna teach them. And they'll respond and they will worship and love me, right? You, 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 you went into it thinking all these things and then the reality of that kid showed up. And you're like, wait a minute. You know? You know, when, when the books tell you this is what you should do and this is how your kid will respond and your kid won't do that, it's the reality. Everybody can say, yeah, I love everybody. Yeah, I love my enemies. That's because you haven't had an enemy in your face to love. I have faith. I can follow God no matter what. That's because the no matter what's been a very low bar. Paul's like, it's awesome. It's awesome. Because not when I suffer for my faith, look at what happens and it, and it produces all these things, but it's also awesome because it's proof that I've been changed. Paul didn't have a death wish. We know he didn't go out seeking persecution. We know that when he had opportunity, as we see in two places here, he left the city. But we also know that when Paul and Silas are in prison, in jail, they're singing and they're praying. We know that Paul later on will, will again be in prison. And in that time he'll say, I've learned to be content in all situations. Philippians, which is one of the letters he writes from prison, he says again and again, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. He's so full of joy and he's in prison. This is, the, this is the action point on this. Be faithful to God. Be faithful to his word no matter how the world responds. A couple of other points to just hit real quickly here. The, the thing we see here about the Bereans, and often you'll hear about the Bereans, and they're often like, kind of looked up to as like, this is how we should be, and, and, and there's truth to that. But let me make sure you understand. This is how we should be as Christians, 
But when the Bereans are doing these things, they're not Christians yet. This is my encouragement to all of you who are either not Christians or you're, maybe you just became Christians or you're, or you're, you know, maybe you're not even sure. Be like the Bereans. You know, John brought this up on Wednesday morning and, and you know, we we're both like agree, like what we love is when people ask us questions. We're not threatened by questions. It's not disrespectful to ask us questions. Questions actually help us. They actually encourage us. They let us know, like, you're actually listening. You're interacting. But especially for those of you who, who are not believers or just aren't sure, ask questions. Listen carefully. Pray that God will teach and reveal, but ask questions. Because what we find here, they're looking at Scripture because that's where the gospel is found. The gospel is the truth found in Scripture. It's one of the reasons we want to hold to God's Word. We want to hold to God's Word as being true. Because if not, we walk down this path of saying, the gospel's true in Scripture, but the rest of it isn't. How did you come to that decision? How did you decide which parts of the gospel, which parts of the Bible are true and which parts aren't? How does that affect how I actually understand what the gospel is? What these Bereans were doing, these, these devout Jewish people were doing is they were, they were listening carefully. When it says they were noble, it's telling you that the most of the Jewish people at Thessalonica weren't listening carefully. They had this idea of like, I got my mind made up, you know, don't confuse me with facts. But they were careful listeners. They considered the truth. They wanted to know truth. They carefully searched. There's two points I want to make first of all is to those of you who are believers if the gospel is the truth found in scripture then we need to be able to study and proclaim a gospel from a well-reasoned understanding of scripture it's not just make it up as i go now, as I said last week, the week before, hey, share what you know. Don't share what you don't know. Share what you know. If all you know is Jesus Christ changed your life, if all you know is that when you prayed to receive Christ, you had a new sense of purpose or hope or joy, you felt like guilt was taken from you when you confessed your sins to God, if that's all you know, share that, okay? If all you know is John 3.16, quote John 3.16, that's fine. But don't just stay there. Know more and more what the gospel is. There are people who've been in church for decades that if I tell them part of the gospel, it doesn't end when, when you 
when you pray to receive Christ and now you have a, a you know, right relationship with God and you're going to go to heaven, God will walk with you. That's all gospel, but that's not all of it. And there's a lot of people that go, wait, that's not all of it. And sometimes they blame the church. They blame the church. They say, they say like, hey, church, um, you are, um, you know, you never taught me that. None of my pastors ever said that. I don't ever comment on what other pastors or what other teachers told you. As I used to tell my students in college when they used to tell me, my teachers didn't teach me that. I said, they might have taught you, you just didn't listen, right? So maybe you were taught. But understand, we need to understand the gospel. We need to live the gospel. We need to share the gospel. And I've already said to those of you who aren't Christians, come, come to our Bible studies, come to our worship time, set up times to talk individually to some of us, come expecting, come hungry. The last point, we see it at the end, and somehow it seems like a, a simple point, but it's so repeated in Acts and throughout the New Testament that I felt we needed to, to say it here, and that is simply this. Luke goes to great lengths to show you how Paul has to leave. He has to leave Berea, and he actually ends up in Athens all by himself. But then how intentional Luke is about saying, as soon as possible, Silas and Timothy will rejoin him. And this is a reminder to me. This is a reminder to me that ministry was never meant to be done alone. Christianity was never meant to be lived alone. That was a lie that was spoken throughout most of the 20th century. That somehow you could be this Christian just on your own. It was always meant meant to be done in the church. It connects back to that witness that we are as a church. Yeah, sometimes we have to be alone. Sometimes we might be the only ones who are, who are faithfully following God. Sometimes, but it's never permanent. Paul has to leave. He has to go to Athens. But it's not permanent. We have to work together. We were reading this week... Um, as we do every Tuesday morning, those of you who join us, there's about four or five of us that get together, and, we, and we've been reading some of the early church writings, and we've been reading Ignatius's letters, and we read Ignatius's letter to Polycarp, and, and he tells Polycarp all these awesome things that, that, the, that the bishop should do, and then he, t- he says some things to the church, and the things he says to the church echoes Romans 12. And he says it in a way that wouldn't be politically correct today, so just understand. But I'm going to read it to you. He says, he, he tells the church, he says, labor together with one another. 
strive in company together, run together, suffer together, sleep together, awake together as the stewards and associates and servants of God. He's ultimately saying what I sometimes sum up as this, live life together as believers in Christ. And you might go, well, that's because, you know, that church back then was all corrupt and all this other stuff. No, get your history right. Ignatius is writing, early second century. Ignatius is writing these letters as he is being taken to Rome to be eaten in front of hundreds if not thousands of people by wild animals. And he knows it. This is the church that's living like this that could stand up to the most intense persecution the church has ever faced, ever will face. And they stood together, and they were strong. This isn't about some corrupt church from the past. No, these are people that have been so transformed by God that they're so in love with God and they're so in love with each other that their witness in the face of persecution was an incredible sign that more and more people would come to Christ because of those who would die for their faith. not saying that we're called to die for our faith, but I am saying this. This is the action point from this, is that to understand that we are the sign. We need to be a church that faithfully and authentically lives out the gospel. 